Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. I'm recording this on April the 2nd, 2020. Yes, still very much in the early days, it seems, of the COVID-19 crisis around the world. And as a result, a lot of us are, are working rather closer to, to home these days. And I'm very pleased to have on the line with me today, Colin Clark, who is a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center in New York City. For those who don't know the Sufan Center, it is one of the world's best counterterrorism and terrorism think tanks. I've been uh, reading their stuff for, for, for quite some time. Colin has his PhD from the University of Pittsburgh, International Security Policy. He's written extensively about a, a lot of things on terrorism, and including this after the caliphate, the Islamic State, and the future terrorist diaspora. So, Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Phil. I'm glad to join. So we could talk about this, obviously, for a very long time. We both have a extensive experience in this field. If I can ask you a very simple but very expansive question, sure. what, what is it that you think that all the work you've done over the past, what has that told you about the nature of terrorism? Yeah, well, I've, I've tried to focus my work. Um, before coming to the Soufan Center, I was at the RAND Corporation for 10 years, and, and um, my work on terrorism at RAND was informed by uh, two themes. One, it was data driven, right? And so I wasn't kind of, um, I was trying not to follow these, um, you know, prognostications by quote unquote experts. I wanted to look at the data in order to figure out um, what the trends were. And secondly, it was nonpartisan, it was objective. And I, I didn't want to fall into the kind of trap that many think tanks do, which is they look at uh, these issues through a partisan lens. And so by being data-driven and being objective, it allowed me to kind of take a step back and look at the nature of the threat. Since joining the Soufan Center, I've continued that. And, you know, one of our kind of unofficial mottos there is to look at trend lines before they become fault lines. Uh, and, and not only that, but to look ahead. So one of the things that I think my uh, my work on terrorism has informed is if we're if you're looking at the current threat, you're already behind, right? So Everybody knows the threat from Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, the threat posed by Salafi jihadists more broadly. We've been late, but have finally woken up to the threat posed by right-wing extremists, including violent white supremacists. But what are we not seeing? So what's percolating under the surface uh, that's coming up just uh, around the curve? And I think that's what I've been devoting a lot of my time to uh, more recently, is trying to figure out what are those issues that are going to motivate political violence in the future? Now, you mentioned about, about data-driven, and I think I have to agree with you on that. Is that a, a bit of a, I don't know, a, a an approach that's not widely used outside of sort of the intelligence slash law enforcement community within academe, think tanks per se? Is most of the work being done not data-driven, i.e. is it mostly sort of sitting back in theoretical frameworks? Are, are, are you guys at the Sufan Center and previously at the RAND, are you guys, were you the odd guys out in that regard? I don't think so. And, you know, and, and I say that not to, not to cast aspersions or point fingers, but to just kind of talk about the way that I've always looked at, at terrorism. Certainly as a longtime scholar, I've read most of the theoretical works. I've looked at a lot of the analytic frameworks. Um, but I think these days with the advent of social media uh, and the just huge demand for content, there's a lot of opinions that masquerade as analysis. And that's kind of mostly what I'm referring to. And some of it is, is pretty ill-informed. Some of it picks up on stereotypes or old tropes that have largely been disproven. And so to use an intelligence term, you know, how do you, how do you separate the signal from the noise, mm. right? How do you find the analysis that is, uh, is cutting edge, is rigorous, is empirical? And that's what I've spent a lot of career doing. And, you know, when you do it for a long time, you get to know people in the field 
you know, folks like Thomas Headcounter, for mm-hmm. example, right. that are the that are the gold standard, right? Of, who, of folks who can combine the methodological approach, the theoretical approach, with kind of putting it in the proper context. Actually, it's it's funny you mentioned Thomas because he was on the, on the podcast with me a few weeks ago, and uh, I, I like you, I, I see Thomas very much as the gold standard of terrorism scholarship in the world. I met Thomas many years ago. I was very pleased he was able to join me from Oslo on a podcast. So what was it about terrorism that attracted you in the first place when you were at the University of Pittsburgh? Well, my interest in terrorism actually predates my my PhD. It goes back to my undergraduate years where I was studying history and political science. I grew up outside of Queens, New York in Long Island, and I'm from an an Irish-American background. So there's always been a fascination with the Irish Republican Army. I was very lucky to be able to go and study at the National University of Ireland, Galway, for a semester where I was studying the kind of uh, the aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement of 1998. It just so happened that on my first day of class uh, was September 11, 2001. Wow. So here I am. Yeah, it was kind of ironic. I'm in Ireland. I'm studying terrorism, but mostly, you know, as an historian. And, and then 9-11 happens. And I'm from a, a, a big military family, mostly Marine Corps. Uh, and, you know, I, I knew that my cousins and some of my friends were getting ready to deploy. But I felt really naive and, and ignorant that I that I knew very little, close to nothing about Afghanistan. I didn't know what Al Qaeda was. I didn't know anything about Salafi jihadism uh, or the role that Pakistan played. Uh, and so, for lack of a better term, I became obsessed with trying to figure out what what was going on. Uh, and that kind of led me to uh, quickly back to graduate school at, at NYU, New York University, uh, the Center for Global Affairs, where I studied transnational terrorism. Uh, after a couple of years there, I was off to the University of Pittsburgh, where I studied with Phil Williams, uh, who's a legendary scholar of transnational organized crime and, and terrorism insurgency. So uh, that was kind of what, what led me along that, that path. That first year, I ended up at the Rand Corporation, the first year of my PhD program, uh, working on a project for the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, where I was studying insurgency, and you know, as they say, the rest is history. So many people have said that 9-11 changed everything, and it, it, from your perspective, from an academic scholarship interest perspective, that's actually a very true story then. Yeah, oh, there's no question about it. I mean, I don't know what I would have ended up doing. I, I You know, most of my friends gravitated toward Wall Street um, because we were all New York guys and, you know, people wanted to make money. Uh, I think personally I probably would have ended up with a, as a lawyer, um, I've always, you know, been interested in the law, and <laughs> I'm first generation in my family to go to college, and you know, so I, I wanted to study what I was interested in, which which was history. And I'd get this question all the time from relatives of like a history degree. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with a history degree? And I often thought, you know, whatever the hell I want to do, I don't know. I, 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 and then people would say, as if it were, you know, the death knell. Well, I guess you could go to law school. And I thought, well, yeah, I guess I, guess I will, you know. Um, but but obviously 9-11 changed everything. And, you know, I, I said something on Twitter the other day because I think, you know, obviously the coronavirus is another watershed moment. And I think people all around the world, you know, smart, talented, hardworking people are going to look at this and, and they're going to devote their lives to epidemiology and studying infectious disease uh, and, and issues like that. And I, I think, you know, in the long run, that that's a good thing. Well, let's hope, in fact, as you say, that this this tragedy, this international tragedy of truly epic proportions does lead to that. You mentioned something interesting. So you're in Ireland. You're studying the, the Easter Accords of 1998, the IRA, the history of terrorism in Ireland. That was a long time ago. And then, you know, you sort of switched your horse to the whole Islamist extremism, Salafi jihadism. 
What you, so if I can ask you to look back, what do you, you know, in the time that you've looked at all this kind of stuff, what have been the major changes? You alluded to the fact that we want to get ahead of the curve. We don't want to dwell on ism as extremism. I mean, it's still there, but we've done a lot of study on it. But if we're going to, you know, prevent another tragic event like 9-11, maybe not at the same scale from happening, you do want to be ahead of the curve. What do you think really has changed since those early days when you started studying this in terms of our understanding of the phenomenon and maybe more importantly, where the phenomenon is going? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think a lot has changed. I think, you know, obviously we, we embarked on this global war on terrorism. Uh, the name itself is rather unfortunate. I think it's a, a misnomer, um, you know, to declare war a tactic. Nonetheless, the United States and the West built this kind of global architecture or infrastructure uh, to counter terrorism. And I think, you know, looking back, uh, have we devoted too many resources and, and, and maybe overreacted? Probably um, when you when you try to look across the board. But at the same time, and, and this is, you know, again, a nod to, to Heghammer, he, he made a comment a couple of weeks ago and he said, um, you know, if there are no attacks, right, you get accused of overreacting, right? But it's the dogs that don't bark, right? Were there no attacks because we overreacted? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, but I think, you know, I, I think there's a lot of lessons learned when you look at Al-Qaeda, uh, when you look at the Islamic State, there's lessons in terms of decapitation strategy. And actually, I'm just looking over, I'm glancing over at a book on my my nightstand, uh, Jenna Jordan's new book on leadership decapitation, uh, strategic targeting of terrorist organizations, mm. which I just started reading. I'm, I'm reading that and then simultaneously uh, finishing Heghammer's Azam biography, mm. which is my, that's my pleasure reading. And then looking at uh, Audrey Kurth Cronin's Power to the People uh, about technological innovation. And that's a book that I'm using for one of the classes I teach at Carnegie Mellon. So um, I'm, I'm kind of neck deep as usual in the terrorism literature. Um, and I think, you know, a lot has changed. I think those threats are still there from Salafi jihadist groups. You know, as I pointed out, and after the caliphate, I think the threat is atomizing. It's mm. uh, becoming more localized. But at the same time, right, we've got to be able to walk and chew gum. It's not a matter of either or. Yeah. That the threats either from religious groups or from right wing groups. Uh, and I think you know, uh, and we can get to this in, in you know throughout the rest of the podcast. But I think there's a lot coming down the pike that we're not prepared for. Some of it's going to look new, and some of it is kind of old wine and new bottles. So I wonder if we can learn from uh, from the past. I think it's similar threats repackaged for the, the modern era, if you will. I'm really glad you, you said that, Colin, because I constantly see this debate, and we have it here in Canada as well, whereby... You know, well, is Salafi jihadism really that much of a danger? We, you know, we've had two people killed from it in the past, in the post 9-11 period. And they happened to die within two days of each other. Two wannabe jihadis who wanted to go abroad and couldn't because their passports had been seized. They decided to carry out their attacks here. And if you pick up the, you know, the op-ed pieces uh, on a weekly or maybe monthly basis, because in Canada, terrorism doesn't get the same coverage it does in your country. There are these claims that we're following the wrong threat, that really it's the far right. And they point to the attack in Quebec City in 2017, where a man walked into a mosque and killed six people. Wasn't charged with terrorism under Canadian law, he was charged with murder. But they said, oh, that's the real threat. It's the right wing guys. But as you said, it's it's kind of all of the above simultaneously. And I just want to sort of comment a bit on the point you said about, you know, the dog that didn't bark, uh, you know, coming from a security intelligence background. We don't know either how many threats we may have foiled just by the fact we told the guys we knew who they were and what they were they're doing. They may have just sure. turned tail and ran, right? Because didn't want to get arrested, didn't want to come on the radar. So how is it that as a society then, we, you know, we're, we're, we're in a clickbait society. We're in a society that doesn't seem to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. How do we collectively, people like me, people like you, how do we 
inform the public, inform the debate on this this notion that yeah, some of the threats will be, as you said, you know, old wine and new bottles. Some threats will be completely new. How do we get that message across to people in a way they can understand? Well, I think I'll go back to my original point, which is to be data driven, right? This isn't Colin Clark's opinion. This is Colin Clark's analysis of existing data. And I think we've got to focus on the science that underpins it, the social science methods. Um, I think we have to be honest and I think we have to be credible, right? We have to avoid being threat inflators, right? Um, We have to be very sober in in our assessment. And I think, you know, the, the more honest and transparent we can be, to, you know, within reason, right? I mean, sometimes you're starting to push up against the realm of the classified, and I think there's a good reason why certain data does remain classified. Um, but the more that we can share, we can we can show people that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is one of, of many threats that they can go about living their life. Um, but here's why we're doing what we're doing, and it's ultimately to keep you safe. And I don't, I think that applies across the board. Not, not just that's just not true for counterterrorism, but I think. You know, clearly that's now true for public health and it's always been true right uh, or um you know the economy or all these other ways that we've structured our society um to keep people safe and and, and to kind of maintain some semblance of, of life as usual you brought up a very good point and that's when the counterterrorism uh, network uh, field of study runs up against the whole classified the fact that intelligence services like the ones i used to work for and law enforcement are, are acting in the same space I'm just curious what your opinion would be, Colin, and you can obviously maybe speak more from an American perspective. How is that relationship going? How could it get better? How could we have more dialogue between people like you and people like I used to be on the inside? What what could we do to better take advantage of each other's strengths and therefore come up with better strategies moving forward on how to counter terrorism? Yeah, it's it's another great question. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm kind of a hybrid because I'm now somewhat of a of, of an academic. But I worked in the think tank world and I also, you know, did classified work for a long time at RAND. Uh, and so I did spend a lot of time in the halls of the Pentagon uh, and meeting with folks in the intelligence community. So I know both sides. Um, and I think, again, you know, highlighting the fact that there are credible, credible messengers out there, people that do, um, you know, uh, that conduct analysis with integrity, with, um, you know, with rigorous methodological application. And I think you know, the exchange, right? So public-private partnerships, highlighting those. Um, It it sounds kind of odd to say it now, given the current environment and and the current climate that we're dealing with, but um, I've always thought and found workshops and conferences to be uh, extremely useful in getting people in the same room, right? And maybe kind of breaking down preconceived notions or myths of, you know, and, and look, we're struggling with it here in the United States, this whole uh, notion of the deep state, which mm. I find to be ut- utterly ridiculous. It's got real life, uh, you know, ramifications. If you just look at what's happening to Dr. Fauci right now, absolutely, he had to. There, there's an article today saying he had to have increased security because this whole QAnon conspiracy movement mm. thinks that he's part of this deep state, which doesn't exist. There is no deep state. This is it's comical to a certain extent for people that have have kind of lived and worked. Uh, with the intelligence community, but the, but this is all, it's nonsense, and it contributes to conspiracy theories and fear-mongering, and actually it's, it's so counterproductive beyond what most people can understand. 
yeah, you do raise the Fauci thing, and I I find that uh, incredulous coming from a Canadian perspective. I'm not here to lord it out Canada or the United States, but I can't imagine a similar situation where our chief medical officer would have to receive a police detail because some wanker in BC decided that he didn't like the message he was hearing. You you talked about this this sort of interchange, this communication between the outside and the inside. I know we did that here in Canada as well. We had. Uh, where I used to work, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service had an academic outreach program. We would regularly bring people like yourself in. We'd have day-long conferences. We would have talks. Do we need to do more on that front, do you think? Yeah, I think more is, is always better. I mean, I was very lucky to be able to spend the whole month of June in uh, in Europe last summer. Um, I was over uh, as a, I'm an associate fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague, which you, we know quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to kind of sit there and work on a research project on Al-Qaeda. And while I was there, I was able to meet with policymakers and intelligence officials in the Netherlands, as well as in, in Belgium. And I found it to be um, incredibly helpful. Uh, I hope they did too. And I was able to kind of talk about some of the findings with my book. Um, and talk about some of the challenges that are unique to, to those countries. We talked a lot about uh, returning foreign fighters, why the numbers haven't been as big as many expected, what to do with some of the uh, complicated policy issues that are facing those countries now in terms of repatriation, in terms of um, children, in terms of ISIS foreign fighter families, right? And so, you know, bringing the uh, academic side together with intelligence and policymaking, I, I think it's critical because you know, those forge relationships um, and, and they help build an infrastructure that's already in place, right? You don't have to build it from scratch the next time something happens. And there will be a next time. We don't know what it will be, um, but but it's not like, you know, you then have to start reaching out to figure out who's who. Those people know each other. They can get to work, you know, they can hit the ground running. I'm glad you you raised the ICCT and the Hague because, as you said, I was actually a, a fellow there as well a couple of years ago, and I'm still associated with them, and I couldn't agree with you more. Of all the countries that I worked with in my career, and I worked with dozens and dozens of countries, I, I've always said that the Netherlands was one of the most forward-thinking. You know, their intelligence service was putting out unclass well, classified based but unclassified versions of their findings on radicalization in the Netherlands way back in the early 2000s before any any of us even thought of going down that road so uh, yeah the ICCT in the Hague for those who don't aren't aware of it it's International Center for Counterterrorism in the Hague uh, go to their webpage they have an amazing set of, of uh, pieces of analysis on it they're a great think tank so it, it definitely is worth checking them out let's let's move a little bit on to sort of um, attack modes um, you know there's a lot of thought given to how terrorists do what they do what is their methodology what is their preferred way of of planning things and carrying out things and of course if we look at 9-11 being sort of the almost the unattainable it, it probably is the once in a lifetime kind of let's hope it's the once in a lifetime kind of thing all the way down to the at the other end where you've got people we've had a few cases here in canada people show up to army recruiting centers with knives and start slashing while yelling allahu akbar not limiting it to Salafi jihadism, but looking, as you said, at the, the sort of the threat groups per se, can you offer us any speculation or analysis on sort of where you think sort of the, the method of attack is going by these actors? Yeah, so uh, I can. And I think being able to read um, Audrey Kurth Cronin's book right now, The Power to the People, How Open Technological Innovation is Arming Tomorrow's Terrorists, I'm, I'm actually delving quite a bit into the historical evolution. And so I'm, I'm reading about dynamite right now, hmm. uh, which, seem, which seems quite ancient, right? Um, and one of the points she makes is that 
terrorists are sometimes the, the innovation curve occurs a lot more slowly than we think. But it's something I've, I've done a, a lot of thinking about. In fact, a couple of weeks ago in Lawfare, um, I published an, an article with David Gartenstein Ross. Uh, what, you know, we looked at the we call it the violent, violent non-state actor technology adoption curve, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that I've been thinking a lot about, which is with the advent of new technologies. And, and David and I ran a project on terrorist use of drones um, together last year. So thinking a lot about how drones could be used in the future, artificial intelligence, um, pretty scary things like gene editing tools, but even the more benign things like virtual currencies, right? I often get the question, because a lot of my work is focused on terrorist financing, why don't we see more terrorist use of, of virtual currencies? And my answer, not to be flip about it, is we'll, we will when we see more people um, in regular society using mm-hmm. virtual currencies, because that offers cover and concealment for terrorists to be able to it would look quite strange, right? If 80% of the people are, you know, from the criminal underworld or, mm-hmm. or using these things. And, and I think that for me, that rings true across most of the, the emerging technologies that we look at, drones as well. So again, to, to kind of loop in the, the current environment with coronavirus, how does this change society going forward? Do we have a lot more delivery? And is that delivery done by drones? And if that's true, right, I think we were heading down that path anyway, Perhaps it's expedited, but if you're getting your Amazon book or your groceries delivered via drone in two years and three years, um, the, the term we used when we were running the workshops was UTM, uh, unmanned traffic management. Mm-hmm. If it just becomes commonplace mm-hmm. to have drones buzzing above your head, that offers a lot of opportunities for people with nefarious intentions. We've already seen in Venezuela uh, an attempted assassination against Nicolas Maduro using two drones equipped with plastic explosives. Yeah, that you was know, last year sometime, I believe. Yeah, it's very crude, you know, very easy to do, and it almost worked. And, and you're talking about a head of state, right? And so um, it, it does bring me back a little bit full circle to the dynamite question, right? Which is, you know, here's this, you know, common common tool, um, and, and it was used to assassinate multiple heads of state, mm-hmm. you know, during the anarchist wave. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you raised that point. And I, while you were talking, I was thinking of a book that I read many years ago called Buddha's Wagon. I don't know if you've heard of it, and it talked no. about a, an attack in New York City, I believe, in 1920. So it was sort of just the end of the anarchist wave of terrorism, and it was on, basically on Wall Street. Yeah, yeah exactly. Basically, it's this guy, the guy that loaded his wagon with dynamite and detonated it. Uh, he had some kind of grievance against who knows what financial war doesn't really matter, and took out quite a number of people. And of course, you know, as you note, dynamite was almost the tool of choice of the anarchist wave, and it, it you know, it took a Alfred Nobel had developed dynamite as a, as a way to help mining, and here the terrorists had usurped the technology. And I think the point there is, as you said, whether it's drones or Bitcoin, whatever, terrorists will use what we're using simply for their own purposes. They will take what has been designed by others and simply modify it if they have to, or simply deploy it to to further their own way of doing things. So I, I, I like the way that you that you frame that. And then it becomes a challenge is if, if, if this is ubiquitous, if, if our drones are coming to our door every day, if you know Bitcoin is used by all of us every day, how do we find that needle in the haystack, right? Because it becomes one out of billions or one out of trillions. Yeah, and actually I just flipped open the book because because you referenced it. And on page 62 of Cronin's book, she's got a figure, aftermath of the 1920 dynamite explosion on Wall Street, New York. Um, and so there it is, and you can see rubble and, and cars flipped over and everything. So um, yeah, again, you know, I think in terrorism studies, what's old is new again in many ways. And so um, it we don't need to be panic-induced and, and, and fear-stricken to think, how are we going to deal with these new threats? We have to look at how we've dealt with them in the past, what's worked, what's, what hasn't worked, right? And press ourselves 
um, to, you know, to discern what could work moving forward. I really like that message about not panicking and, you know, terrorism is terrifying for a lot of people. It frightens people disproportionately. We saw, I, I've used this story many times, that I was actually in Paris the day of the November 2015 attacks. I left Paris the day actually before oh, wow. the attacks took place to get back to Canada to find out that all these people were canceling trips to Paris because they were terrified of terrorism. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Paris is the safest city on the planet right now because they've deployed yeah. every police gendarme militia whatever to prevent what they you know the, the sort of the, the other shoe dropping kind of thing so so if i could ask you to sort of end end on a, on a as positive a note as possible what would be your message to americans canadians whoever's listening to this post out in the uh, in the world what should be our overarching response as a society to the threat of terrorism how should we frame it how should we view it how should we react to it yeah, so I think keeping it in perspective is critical, right? Oftentimes, well, you've heard, you've heard the phrase, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Um, so, so be discerning about the statistics. And I think, you know, we've seen any range of charlatans and hucksters attempt to kind of misuse statistics to mislead us about the threat from the coronavirus, right? Saying, oh, it's just the flu or more people die and, uh, you know, car accidents or all these other things. You know, and there's an agenda there, right? So, so you know, Look at sources, look at where places are funded, figure out what the agenda is and and read widely, you know, and, and find out for yourself. Don't just accept something that you've seen on the internet and, and really press yourself and people will say, well, I don't have time. That's why I leave it up to the experts. Okay, granted, then find the right experts, mm -hmm. right? Find the people that are doing the best work and follow them uh, because there's a whole bunch of people and I'm not gonna name names, but there are, you know, folks out there and not only on the right, on the left and, and everywhere in between uh, that that aren't doing good work, but still get widespread attention. So, you know, force yourself to to be more discerning and stay calm. And um, again, educate yourself. Read. Wait, you're telling me there's there's false information on the internet? I'm just hearing yours for, for the first <laughs> time. I think that's a great message, Colin. Uh, I think that you're absolutely right. I was just uh, sent a video by somebody who, uh, this is a video put out years ago by the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, on expertology. And there actually are schools that will teach you how to become an expert. You don't have to have any knowledge. You just have to be able to present yourself as authoritative and speak the right way. So uh, I want to thank you very, very much for taking the time in this in the midst of this coronavirus to uh, to speak to me. I, I really liked a lot of the points that you made. And I, I, I want to congratulate you on the work that you've done and, and wish you all the best in, the, in your work going forward. Yeah, thanks so much, Phil. It's been a pleasure to join you and, and look forward to staying in touch and, and working together in the future. Absolutely. Thanks. So that was uh, the podcast with Colin Clark. I'd like to hear what you thought of our conversation. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Borealis Saves, on LinkedIn, or on Facebook. You can go to my website, www.borealisthreatrisk.com, to hit the subscribe button. You can get all this information free of charge in a daily email to your inbox as often as you'd like. Give me your feedback. What do you think? I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>